Welcome. Welcome to the fifth episode of Turning Earth, the environmental podcast. Um, if you're listening to this, it means you've made the decision to listen to me and Eric give out about stuff for about an hour. Liam might chime in sometimes as well with some of his baby nonsense. Very insightful. Um, he's got lots to say. Uh, split into two sections, roughly one on, uh, we'll be focusing on Shell, and we'll tell you why that is in a minute, and the next section we'll be focusing on Ireland more broadly. Uh, we're going to be talking about the prohibition of fracking bill that's passing through the Oireachtas at the minute, um, and we're going to look at public transport in Dublin City, and also the city councillors discussing to the culling of a bunch of seagulls, um, and we'll be uh, kind of tearing that issue apart a little bit. Lots to talk about, folks. Yeah. Um, but first of all, we'll crack on with Shell. And um, so, why are we talking about Shell? It's been a very important uh, campaign uh, in Ireland for since almost twenty years ago now, and um, it's something that myself and Tommy would have been involved slightly with at at one stage. And we thought that uh, it's been a few years since we ourselves heard about it, and in the media in general. So we thought it was a good time to come back and see what's actually going, what's actually going on, because it hasn't gone away, you know. So I've, basically, we have we've done an interview with Maura Harrington just to see kind of what the state of play is right there on the ground, so to speak. But also, perhaps even a little more so, with some court cases that she's involved with. But um, before we get into the details of it, maybe we should explain a little bit why we were talking about Shell at all in the first place, because I think a lot of people wouldn't be too familiar with it, especially because uh, of what Shell did in Ireland, because they rebranded in 2005. And all there their- would have been an awful lot of misinformation at the time through the media, especially the likes of RTE and the ma- major media sources, so yeah, yeah. it's worth going over and giving everything a bit of a pretext. So why, what, 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 tell me Eric, what, what, have, what have Royal Dutch Shell Petroleum been up to in Ireland for the last 15 or so years? So I'm just going to, I'm going to keep this nice and brief because there's a lot of, I could go into a huge amount of detail, but I'm just going to give a nice uh, basic overview. So basically um, in 1996 there was, there was a company called Enterprise Energy and they discovered a very large field of natural gas in Corrib just off the northwest coast of Mayo, about 70 or so kilometres out. And um, at the time this, everyone thought this was similar a bit to Kinsale Field that it exists from some years before that. Uh, everyone thought this was great especially the locals thought this was going to be fantastic um, an area like that that's extremely rural and depopulated uh, major issue in that area so they thought oh you know maybe there'll be some jobs out of this and this is great as it turned out over the next you know couple of years um, when they started getting more information about what was actually going to happen and what, what it would involve and what the plans were going to be they started to get uh, quite concerned but the essential issue was the, the, that the gas that they were, were taking in from this well in the sea was going to be unrefined, untreated gas, and it was going to be in a high-pressure pipeline yeah. through populated areas. Which is normally, if you've got a gas pipeline going through a populated area, it'll be treated. It'll have a smell added to it. It'll and have it won't be high pressure. Been very well processed and refined. Yeah. This was this was unrefined, absolutely one hundred percent raw, very extremely high-pressure gas. In other words, there could be an explosion. Lots of people could yeah. die very easily, which has happened a few times in different parts of the world. Opponents um, of it would have called it an experimental pipeline because it, w- it hasn't it hadn't been done anywhere else in the world at that stage. Basically, yeah. um, in two thousand and two, Shell um, basically bought or overtook Enterprise Energy, um, that will become important uh, very shortly. But it, the uh, the the project was ongoing in its original guise. In any case, on review in two thousand and three, on board Planala rejected the application for this project saying that it was the wrong site, uh, the wrong perspective, the wrong strategy, wrong uh, perspective on sustainable development. I'm kind of half taking quotes here from, at that time, uh, Kevin Moore would have been the the inspector from board Planala, just the wrong site for various host of reasons. So they, uh, in 2004, on board Planala, with a different inspector, accepted the proposals yet again. Mm. This was after being lobbied heavily by Shell no? yes um, with the Shell of the admitted government. I think in 2009 later on that um, they'd lobbied very hard for Kevin Moore to be replaced with a different inspector and they had sat down with Fianna Fáil that time so Bertie Hearn um, so this is part of all part of Fianna Fáil's legacy as well amongst all the all of the other things and Ber- Bertie Hearn specifically is important in this because um, not just was he he was Taoiseach at the time um, but also because it was himself and Ray Burke who changed uh, the oil and gas licensing terms in the late 80s and early 90s previous to that and turned into a giveaway more or less yeah, yeah exactly and previous to that there would have been like a 
the, the regime that was set up by, um, what was his name, Justin Keating. Um, he modelled on the Scandinavian model where it would have been a 50% state participation in any oil or gas being taken from the ground. Um, but that was altered by Ahern and Burke. Uh, they, they, allowed, they lowered the corporation tax significantly and then again in 2001 they lowered it even more when yeah. they were in government and they changed it so that there would be no state participation or royalties. We have one of the lowest corporation tax rates in the world at the yeah, moment. Yeah. And also they changed the, the, the law so that it would allow companies to completely write off all of their expenses against their tax. Um, so basically, as you said, they turned it into a giveaway. With, without, without wanting to go off, go off on a tangent, we're, what we're touching on here is the fact that Ireland in general, as an economic model, has been shaped by extremely, basically right-wing, privatising interests. Um, everything given to corporations and nothing taken by the state for the good of the people. But again, not wanting to go off on a tangent, but it's part of that broader theme of that always happening in Ireland. You yeah. see with any type of finance going on uh, Sean, Fitz, Sean Fitz, pa- Fitzpatrick was just acquitted today but again not want to go off on a tangent but it's that same sort of corporate uh, what's the word um, just corruption basically or official uh, legalised corruption yeah. but uh, so this is the wrong so the financing model of this the, the, the country's not going to get any money there's not going to be any hospitals built out of this it's extremely dangerous uh untreated natural gas then be treated and refined onshore and the reason for that by the way was because it's much cheaper for Shell mm. so it was only for a monitor it wasn't for any other benefit other than that um, um, so the, the main it, reason people were objecting of course was safety I mean there were that was the yes that was they were, they were basically yeah. told that if the project went on in its, in, its, in, its, in its current form that people were going to die and that they should leave the area they yeah, should move they should out the area straight away, yeah. we're talking about an area where people would live for generations I mean even if that wasn't the case it, and it wouldn't be right yeah. but they were told this by uh, third-party uh, scientists and professors, not by Shell, of course, or by the Irish state. Of course. Yeah, yeah, no, the knowledgeable um, academics. Yeah. Um, in 2005, there was uh, five men in Rossport were jailed after disobeying court injunction. There had been CPOs, compulsory purchase orders, which up until that point would only ever been issued for things like roads for the government to to buy a house so they could build a road over it and smash it and, and give them compensation to buy another house somewhere. So for the first time, CPOs were issued for the benefit of a private corporation, Shell, to get this project built. Um, the five in Rossport, the Rossport Five, the game to be known as. So that was five men from the Rossport area, um, Philip and Vincent McGrath, Willie Corduff, James Philbin, and Michal O'Shine were the five. And they were jailed for disobeying court injunctions. They'd been blocking the roads not to not allow work to happen and that kind of thing. So they were jailed for that. That was a, a major um, strategic error by, if you like, the, the Shell Irish state complex. Because, you know, it was one of those situations with the state and the corporation uh, working um, very much glove and hand and fist. Hand and glove? Hand and glove. Hand and fist, fist and glove. <laughs> hand fist, hand fist in fist. a fist in a glove. So... Um, Basically, at that stage, the campaign took off into a national campaign because people were outraged about this, yeah. despite all the misinformation and prop- sorry disinformation and propaganda issued by the government, the RTEs and the like, and Shell, of course. Um, it turned into a, basically a national campaign. There was a massive march in Dublin to have them released. Um, they eventually were after a couple of months, I think it was, and they were released not not having not having given in in terms of. You know, they continued to physically block the road um, in Mayo, but they were released in spite of that because it just they just it backfired as a as a PR move. It was disastrous. Um, from two thousand five onwards, um, two thousand six was the first time that I myself personally had been uh, down in uh, Mayo. I think Tommy about the same time probably. Um, from that stage onwards, there was um, you know initially the so you have a situation where there's a, a camp created. There's the locals who live in the area as well as a camp for people from outside the area ourselves coming from Dublin and Meath and any other well anywhere basically um, you have people blocking the road on a day to day basis the police would have started off trying to come onto the land and try to arrest people en masse but you're talking about an area where there would have been up until this point literally one Garda and maybe a cell a jail cell for maybe one or two people or something like that um, so arresting people is not really strategically you know doable so um at some point shortly after that, there's strategy changes where they basically use basically brutality, things like baton charging people. Um, there was a, one sergeant who uh, he took one guy and beat him up bloody, bloodied him up at his face and then threw him down the ditch. We'd been thrown down from a, a road, from a bridge we were trying to block. We had been kind of shoved off by a whole array of police. So not arresting people anymore, just brutality. This, this was common practice at that time as well. Like, <clears throat> at this stage, there was loads of people from the 
it was still mostly being supported by locals and people from the yeah. from from the county really from the region who were still coming out in big numbers to block the work and to protest and were getting just getting insanely treated by the guards thrown like battened like people of all all age ranges old people young people all getting battened by the oh cops. yeah some people getting some people getting pretty badly injured as well um but so that goes on for you know a few more years but um you know, all sorts of crazy stuff happens. I mean, Pat O'Donnell was um, his boat his, in the middle of the night at something like midnight or whatever. He was out. He was he's a fisherman in the area, and he'd been blocking on the boat later on. Um, and he had his boat was stormed by men apparently with them um, automatic rifles, AK forty sevens or something like that, mm. and uh, sank his boat. And the insurance didn't pay out his boat because it was defined as an act of terrorism. So he didn't even get the insurance money out of it. Um, so uh, that's a kind of thing. And like there was a there was a time around the same time as well that Willie Cordoff was he was underneath the truck again. It was late enough. He was underneath the truck to stop it from you know moving and stop work from happening. And police suddenly disappeared. And you know men in black or whatever it was came the along as the security yeah. guards who were. I mean there was a couple of different security companies in charge of the car project over the years, but the IRMS were by far the most infamous. Um, their recruits uh, included people with links to right-wing militia groups. They're basically mercenaries. Or mercenaries, yeah. Ex-army type of... Um, well, there's, there's no need for us to go into loads more detail about this period. I think it's all really well documented in documentaries like Pipe Down, which you can find on Vimeo. It's an excellent, it's about an hour long, really good documentary. And, of course, The Pipe by uh, Rich Dardodonal. But generally, the picture we're painting here is one of severe, severe police repression, uh, surveillance of the locals... Um, har- harassment by private security and cops. There's also uh, really indisputable evidence of uh, staggering le- levels of bribery going on uh, between Shell and the guards. They were uh, one Christmas, I can't remember what year it was. They were they were donated thirty five grands worth of alcohol to the <laughs> cop shop in Belmullet. And it, this isn't like this isn't some conspiracy theory. This comes direct from the company who did it, OSSL, uh, an oil services company. They, That's right. They provide services to the oil and gas industry, and they were working for Shell at the time. They fell out with them in a, a dispute over something because they were being asked by Shell not just to do all this mad stuff, but also to withhold evidence and to, to make fake they invoices. They ended up doing the exact opposite of that. They yeah. took the real invoices and made them public, so yeah. this was all well known. So fair play to OSSL. <laughs> a number of guards' names showed up on those uh, subjects, some of whom will be familiar to the people of Rossport and campaigners, such as uh, Sergeant Butler, Superintendent Joe Gannon, Chief Superintendent John Gilligan, uh, Sergeant Gill, Sergeant Grimes... Uh, all these people were directly invoiced by this company as well and uh, none of them have come out to deny it not one of them no of course not no um, there's no point it was all true and the whole point of all this was because they decided the project was going to happen and the, 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 the demand was basically literally shell to sea so put the refinery offshore like every at the greater expense to shell who are getting basically their corporate tax written off basically because they get to write that off against the cost of building the thing so they're effectively paying no tax zero royalties absolutely none but they, the campaign was only to make them put the refinery offshore and have it safe for the locals and they weren't even going to let that happen and that's the reason for all of this violence and terror on the part of the state and let's see where it got us let's look how the car project is doing at the minute um, so gas started flowing kind of the end of 2015 the beginning of 2016 I think it was marked by a spectacular display of gas flaring on New Year's Eve uh, there was a, a video put online of uh, shell workers laughing about it thinking it was a great way to spend New Year's Eve that was very promptly taken down off YouTube so the project started off with that it's had 420 million euros worth of sales in its first year and a spokeswoman from Shell said since December 2015 the carb gas development has established itself as an integral piece of Ireland's energy infrastructure and supplies up to 60% of the national gas requirement we look forward to contributing to Ireland's energy security over the next 15-20 years now that, that sounds fabulous of course but as we mentioned earlier the state the, the, this, the, there's no security for the state in this the state are buying this back they have full market rate yeah. it might as well be coming from Uzbekistan or, or Venezuela yeah. it makes no difference whatsoever that it's coming because yeah. we're buying at a full market rate from a corporation this could have been used to at least fund anything that the country needs anything at all hospitals, schools whatever is you know we would have had a 50% stake in it oh, yeah. until Ray Burke and Bertie Hearn changed that and it's pretty obvious at this stage that if it wasn't for the many legal challenges to the project and the community lobbying as well as the direct action by the community and solidarity activists blocking the work for years, that the project would have been rushed through, uh, pushed through violently by the state many years ago and it would have been a lot more dangerous than it is now. And They'd originally planned to have the gas flowing, I think by like 2003. Yeah, the so project was, was like 11 or 12 years behind. It was about 12 years or 13 or something like that, years late. So 
and many billions of euro of profit loss in the meantime so at least that's you know that's something really good that did come out of it that they won't think they might think uh, again before just r- trying to rush it through a community and see how much they're going to lose potentially by doing that yeah so we, we'll, we'll go, go over to Maura now and she'll kind of uh, tell us what, what it's like on the ground now and uh, tell us what the crack is with the judicial review uh, but before we do that there's one more thing I want to bring up which is the IRMS we talked about them briefly earlier uh, run by ex-army ranger Jim Farrell uh, they went out of business after Corb because Corb was their business it was literally the only thing they had going for them um, surprise surprise and they were bailed out along with loads of other companies uh, by the state and the state has recently written off over over 300 million euros worth of debt from private companies who've gone into liquidation and IRMS are among them IRMS were IRMS were bailed out to the tune of half a million by uh, the Department of Social Protection and the Revenue Commission who aren't going to get that money back they've just forgotten about it the reason I want to draw attention to that in particular is because I was cycling home the other day and I passed a massive billboard saying uh, welfare fraud is a crime or welfare cheats cheats us all welfare yeah welfare cheats cheats yeah that's the one yeah it's yeah complete nonsense obviously I mean it's, it's really anyone with half a critical mind on can tell a second anyone with like <laughs> anyone who's even a remotely a critical thinker uh, can will see through that you know it's, it's really obviously like like we talked about before a distraction technique Mm. To, to pretend like that's an issue it's, well, it's to give Varadkar his own campaign his yeah. own initiative ahead of becoming potentially the Taoiseach it's to get his face in the paper and it's working I'm sick of looking at him at this stage <sighs> so I guess I just wanted to draw attention to the, the, the hypocrisy of that of like and it was said a lot at the time that you know th- that this project was going to create jobs mm. where the jobs of course was said a lot at the, at the time by like people on our side that it, that, that was only ever temporary bar for a handful of specialists yeah, and IRMS going under and having to be bailed out is a very clear example of that yeah. right so to take us uh, rapidly back up to the present day here's uh, Maura Harrington who we caught up with there a couple of weeks ago ok so Maura thanks for, for speaking with us today the uh, <coughs> first question I want to ask you is um, I know you were in the up in Dublin at the High Court recently could you just explain uh, to someone who doesn't know the story the, the nature of the judicial review in the High Court Right, well, I try. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's not the um, the easiest thing in the world, and it's not something uh, somebody would easily uh, take on. But when it has to be done, it has to be done, and it's as simple as that. A judicial review is taken in the High Court, and it doesn't rehear the actual substance of a case. But it's it's very legalistic for a, a lay person um, you you get case law kind of thrown at you <laughs> to a degree but that's uh, my thinking on it is that when leave is granted to take a judicial review and it's a review by the courts on the manner in which a uh, consent was granted. As I said, it's not revisiting the actual substance of the thing. Mm. It's examining in law whether everything was was done according to law, and that would be according to Irish law and EU law uh, as it's transposed into Irish law, mm. and whether or not that is properly done. Okay. <clears throat> it's a mouthful, I know, but... Yeah, yeah. Again, why I'm doing it, I, I, there's one judicial review heard and over and awaiting decision, and that was on the EPA uh, grant of Revolution Masons to Shell. Mm. That case has been heard. And the final one uh, for judicial review is um, that on Alex White's um, decision on the 29th of December 2015 to grant a consent to Shell for... Um, letting them go ahead with things, which was followed, of course, two nights later by a um, spectacular New Year's Eve uh, fire display. Oh, the gas but that case has yet to be heard. And I, I just finished by saying that, that for me, when you're allowed to take a judicial review, there shouldn't be any pulling back from us until the case has been heard and decided upon, because it has to become a matter of record. 
Right, Jay. Okay. You know, it will be there on the court records in the public domain, and it's there for all time. Um, we wanted to, <clears throat> we wanted to ask you as well about. Um, it's been many many years that the the campaign and this project has been ongoing. Um, and of course, there's obviously there's a lot of you know police uh, repression over the years and. Well, we just wanted to kind of ask, you know, in the last few years, how, what are the kind of, you know, the attitudes of people on the ground been like? Uh, how are people feeling? Is there much, you know, interaction still with the police or not? Um, really, for those who were fully involved in it, um, there is absolutely no wish to have any of the police who were, who were directly involved anywhere next night or near you. Yeah. They really did um, show themselves to be the worst example of um, what's going. You know, and I, I hear, uh, you know, in relation to all the other police-related stuff that that goes on now, um, you know, I hear them say, "Oh, well, there's only it's, it's a few bad apples." Yeah. It's a very rare good apple. That's left. I was just saying it seemed fairly systematic to me when I was there. It didn't really seem that it, you know, whatever about the individuals, like it seemed like, you know, there was there was a strategy at play there about, you know, terror. Like I'm kind of common to now, but terrorizing people so that like the project oh, would, yes, would go I, ahead. I believe they, they did so with the guarantee of immunity. In other words, yeah. you know, off you go, lads and lassies. Um, do whatever you like, and there'll be no comeback. But yeah. we are still involved in holding them to account. I mean, the, the most recent thing was that support Chelsea C gave to the spy cops people, you know, for the Pittsburgh Inquiry in England. And again, um, you had an undercover, at least one undercover cop that's known of from the Metropolitan Police yeah. uh, down at us. That's a massive and scandal, yeah. doesn't want to know. They may have even known. It's possible that they even knew about it. And it only came into the public domain very recently. And that's another big scandal. And it was something we were also going to touch on as well. Um, he's been, and he seems to be away scot-free. Um, Mark Stone is his real name. Mark Kennedy, Mark Kennedy yeah. is his real name. Mark Stone was his, his cover name when he was um, in Ireland. But um, I believe he's in the States or somewhere at the moment. So he's also gotten away with it. Just fine, and it seems that the Irish police, the Gardaí, have absolutely zero, and the and the political politicians obviously have zero interest in pursuing him as well. Absolutely none. But I, I have to say, I salute the women who you know came forward on us and who who had a, a diabolical um, experience, and I salute their legal team. Um, there's a, a great guy from the, the north who's representing them. And um, again, it's, it's a long haul, but um, they are very determined people yeah. because they they suffered a, a grievous wrong. And again, what gets me, you know, this, this thing of women, as, oh, we have a... a female uh, police commissioner and we have a female minister for justice. Mm. There's no difference between shits and suits and shits and skirts when the mindset <laughs> is merely to um, preserve the status quo. That's right, because he was involved. I, as far as I know, he, 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 was actually, he was actually told to get involved in, in relationships with women in England and, and, and here. So, which is, which is, you know, like systemic like sexual abuse basically yes but I, I believe the the metropolitan police in England have have actually admitted that they were wrong they have admitted that a, a wrong yeah. was done to to these women and again it goes back to everything that's wrong in this country you know there is nobody is ever held personally accountable for mm. anything other than those of us who were called before the courts and um, had law, like the Jobstown people, had the law unilaterally applied to them. Yeah, yeah. If it was applied yeah. all round, that would be fine. You'd take your medicine. Yeah. But 
when it is applied collectively, and again, that's where the courts um, have to answer for stuff as well. Suppose all all people do, but people are doing it, and it, it's certainly a, a result of one of the consequences of our own campaign. You don't give up; you keep going, just yeah. because gas is probably flowing there at the moment, and that's kind of moved to a degree. But um, even if it did, the campaign cost the company. Yeah. Um, twelve years in time. And everybody who was down there, you know, is part of that. We cost them 12 years in time, which put their timeline distinctly out of sync. Yeah. And roughly $3 billion. Yeah. You know, so, um, but then we keep going because we will keep, I think it's very important that it's kept on the record and eventually, you know, I expect to be dead and gone, but it will be there and it's, it will have played its part in hopefully making this cursed state as a better place to to live in. Um, I guess just to you've already kind of talked about it a little bit, but just um, would you say like what are pe- people's attitudes towards the project, or how have they changed over the last couple of years? Is it still something that people are talking uh-huh. about? Well, it's not forgotten because uh, really it had much the the same effect here as the Civil War had. You know, mm-hmm. I said people were just getting over the, the Civil War divisions, you know, just be the ball and Finnegan thing and Ushak Collins and all of that. And then along comes Shell. And people in the country have long memories, you see. They don't yeah. um, they don't forget easily. No. In terms of um speaking personally it has happened that a lot of people who, who for for their own, you know, good reasons, they're not talking about quarry owners now and the last who has a, a self-interest in it, but people who genuinely thought it would be good for the area and, you know, for yeah. employment and they they couldn't see the what, they, they couldn't see the whole picture of, of what we were actually um, defending. Yeah. But they can see it now. You know, unfortunately, when it's too late. And I have had people come to say to me, and I, I appreciate it, you know, well, I was wrong. Yeah. We can all be wrong about things, yeah. you know. But they are the the regular, genuine people who who were, mis- you know, hooled up to their eyeballs. Mm. But, um, so, you know, a few made money, but... That's it. That's gone. And um, anybody who's looking for some nice shell people now who would have been around and all also nice and affable when they were um, wanting to get their way, well, they have gone away now. They have got what they wanted. And um, that's it. But of course, they, they didn't get everything they wanted. Yeah, I guess we can we can wrap up with that. Um, well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us more. Appreciate it. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you really good. for, um, you know, thanks for just keeping it in people's mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, so that was more Harrington um, from Shell to Sea. I think the, for me, I knew the important thing to remember is that these struggles never actually end. They might, like, slow down a bit just because they're not in the media anymore and because there's not so many people there from, from out of the area. They might slow down and quieten down, but they never really go away. Um, still affecting the people there it's still a live issue yeah. you know and it'll continue to be as long as there's gas flaring for example with gas flaring for example and the potential damage that could cause in the short term to people so and that gets into the news too so you know the struggle does continue and um, and it, it makes it makes sense that support for these things I guess diminishes over time and people need to focus their energy on other things on new threats such as fracking or whatever but the question that's coming to my mind is when are we going to have to make the decision to, as well as stopping other stu- uh, stopping future destruction and stopping new destruction, when are we going to start to undo old destruction? Like we're, mm. it's 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 fairly well accepted now. It's like all the strongest and most reliable evidence collected and published by different scientific institutions and organisations and academies tells us that we need to stop burning fossil fuels and we need to leave what's in the ground in the ground if we want to keep. That's keep right. on keeping on as a species you know what That's I mean right. so when are we going to like not only stop pr- producing it but actually go to these existing projects such as the car project and go 
stop production? When are we going to have the bravery yeah. to do that? And how does that how does that done? How does a campaign to make that happen look like? You know, because mm. involves you know tearing up a lot of existing contracts and stuff. So there's a struggle to be had there. But I mean, obviously, it's a struggle worth having. And of course, the upside is that we do have a lot of the science is on our side in terms of the fact. And even still, and you know, and I think we may even disagree a bit on this. I think I think there's potentially something to be said in the the short term use of fossil fuels while you're transitioning to other forms of energy that are much healthier. Um, but even if that's being the case, you know, why are we not getting very high uh, royalties from this? Yeah, and we yeah. can then fund that kind of research, yeah, yeah. that kind of energy development and how to more efficient overall energy use and all sorts of things that need yeah. to happen. So um, yeah, I don't know if we, if we disagree that much. I mean, I'd have difficulty foreseeing a society in which we, we don't use any fossil fuels whatsoever. Mm. But we could definitely, we, we need to use like a minuscule fraction of what we're using we need now. to transition off of it very very quickly if yeah. there's any chance that the 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 climate is not just going to go past a certain point in the very near future and we end up with our more than two degrees increase and we end up with um no more human species or lots of other species so that's the the carnage and the heartache that shell have been wreaking in ireland but um we can uh, turn our attention now to nigeria so oil was discovered there in the late 50s um and shell were among the companies chief among the companies who d- dove in to exploit it and uh, you talk about Irish regulation being bad it was even worse there and the, the, the a lot worse in fact the, yeah the amount of environmental damage that was done there I mean there's no point in us going into it it was like, we could dedicate an entire show to just talking about water, that water resources badly badly poisoned with oil and um, this most directly impacted upon uh, the Ogoni people who uh, were uh, relied on farming and fishing for their livelihood they lived along the Niger Delta they live along the Niger Delta that's their traditional land and um, in the early 90s I think the movement for the survival of the Ogoni people was founded by uh, activist and author Ken Sarawiwa and they were they were founded chiefly to defend the rights of the Ogoni against Shell and against the Nigerian government who were, who were at that time a military dictatorship and they were brutally repressed and eventually uh, Sarawiwa along with eight, eight other activists were executed by the military dictatorship uh, with the support of Shell uh, they're known as the Ogoni Nine uh, Sarawiwa was, uh, was arrested under false murder allegations it later turned out that the witnesses were bribed I mean they were blatantly killed because of their resistance to Shell and to the state which is a great deg- degree of extremity far more than what was happening in Mayo not to diminish what was happening in Mayo but it's just off the charts. Yeah. Repression. To get to give some idea of what went on at that time, I'll just read an excerpt from the, the court documents filed. Uh, we're going to in a minute go on to talking about the uh, court cases that are ongoing um, against Shell. But uh, this is an excerpt from one of those documents uh, which details the allegations against Shell in response to peaceful Ogoni protests against the severe environmental consequences of the oil development. Shell knowingly instigated, planned, facilitated, conspired and cooperated in unprovoked attacks by the Nigerian military against the unarmed residents of Agoniland, resulting in extrajudicial killing, torture, arbitrary arrest and detention, cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment, crimes against humanity, rape, forced exile and the deliberate destruction of private property. Shell and SPDC financially supported the operation of these military units directly and indirectly, including the purchase of ammunition for the police. So that we spoke earlier about the levels of repression faced in Mayo um, that's an even more extreme degree of repression there's a lot of people killed yeah um, but it didn't end there uh, among those continuing the struggle uh, is Esther Keobel who is the wife of Baron M. Keobel um, and she's been fighting Shell in various international courts or at least attempting to since uh, the late 90s um, she, she she fled Nigeria and got US citizenship um, she took a, a lawsuit against Shell in the US Supreme Court in 2013 uh, after working on the project for 10 years um, so she was taken to the court for aiding the Nigerian government in murder uh, however she the court ruled against her, they threw the case out and that set a precedent which blocked other lawsuits against foreign multinationals. Chief Justice John Roberts said they couldn't consider Shell a US entity despite having a presence there as, and I quote, corporations are often present in many countries and it would reach too far to say mere corporate presence suffices. So uh, by virtue of being everywhere, they are nowhere. Yeah, yeah. Now this was backed by the Obama administration. We talked a lot about in the last episode about Obama's relative environmental sensibility versus Trump. 
but it was backed by his administration and the Justice Department advised the Supreme Court to dismiss the, dismiss the case. Now, as John Donovan of Royal Dutch Shell PLC pointed out at the website, uh, this is a horrific double standard as Shell and uh, a bunch of other oil giants are currently taking the Nigeria Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation to court in America to the tune of 1.4 billion for misappropriated funds, a dispute over a production sharing contract. So the court, the US Supreme Court ruled that an individual can't take a company to court for human rights abuses because the company's not tied to America, but a company not tied to America to the US can take another company not tied to the US to court over loss of assets. Yeah. I mean, so, so how does the president apply in one in one direction and not the other? Yeah. Why was that? What, surely that's a yeah. Well, there you go. So these are the ways in which very powerful multinational corporations can get somehow get the courts on their sides, almost like an ideological thing from uh, whatever United States judge made that um, judgment in the, in the first place. So yeah, hope seems to be lost in the U.S. courts. However, she is um, she's taken them to the Dutch courts now. She's started that process in two thousand and sixteen. And uh, uh, the the Netherlands is Shell's home country, so you'd assume she'd have a bit more luck there. Yeah. Uh, she's currently attempting to, well, her and her legal team are currently attempting to seize documents from Shell's US lawyers that they had assembled for the previous case. Um, so the struggle to obtain those documents is currently ongoing in the US courts. Uh, a judge has already ruled that they should be handed over, uh, but Shell's lawyers are appealing the decision. And she's currently facing up against two huge US law, law firms and parties representing literally thousands of tens of thousands of lawyers who are filing legal documents to argue not against the ethics of the, the decision but to claim that billions and in some cases trillions of dollars are at stake if she is allowed to access the documents. <laughs> the parties who submitted against it include the, cha- the US Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers and the Association of Corporate Counsel. They're, they're basically circling the wagons yeah. saying if this, this woman whose, whose husband was murdered by Shell 20 years ago and who's basically just trying to def- defend her place if she's allowed access to these documents where, uh, where it's, it's endangering our huge sums of wealth which is if that what kind of a precedent would that set if that was a- agreed upon yeah you know so that like any billions of dollars of private profit need to be protected far more than any individual human's life that's a that is a dangerous precedent to set very very yeah. so we'll be clo- we'll be watching that one very closely obviously yeah, yeah. No, that would, that would set a really terrifying precedent and there seems to be no end to the difficulty that people can face uh, when trying to pursue multinationals in the courts, especially the oil giants like Shell and BP and, and all that because they, they just have access to so, so many resources. Um, so much money for so many lawyers. Yeah. So which is, that's, that is not for an ordinary person to take that on. It's just, you need a, at least you need a campaign behind you with funding just for having a ridiculous amount of solicitors on your side as well. So it is very, very formidable. They are not messing around over there. Right, so we'll focus our attention back to Ireland now. First of all, uh, fracking. We we spoke to Leah Doherty in the last episode. Um, uh, He was an anti-fracking campaigner from Leitrim, and a a large part of that discussion was about uh, the bill which is being passed through the Oireachtas at the moment, um, known catchily as the Prohibition of the Exploration and Extraction of Onshore Petroleum Bill 2016. That's a mouthful. Uh, yeah, and that's, as of this month, has passed through uh, the Oireachtas uh, Committee, the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Communications, Climate Action and Environment. Another mouthful. I was thinking, actually, we could have like a, a section on this where we uh, make up different conspiracy theories. Because my, <laughs> my, my current conspiracy theory is that they deliberately make the names of all these things really long so that people will get bored of talking about them. <laughs> So I kind of got that feeling where, like the prohibition of the exploration oh fuck it do you know what I, mean? like, I don't want to talk about this anymore um, like there, it's not just it's, it's all very inaccessible because um, I was I actually watched the committee debate and it was quite hard to follow it's 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 like court proceedings you know there's a lot of yeah. needlessly uh, and you don't hear much about language. it as well I mean fracking specifically in the media like you do hear about it sometimes but it's not like, hugely hugely uh, reported on as a big major issue which it should be, yeah. because it's of uh, for for various reasons. It's so dangerous. It's so polluting from from pre- preliminary information, more than preliminary information mm. from the United States. Lots of very badly polluted water supplies. Um, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why. I think in an Irish context, especially that in Ireland, where we've had a, you know, the history of environmental resistance has been very strong, going back to things like you know the nu- anti-nuclear 
protests from many decades ago which stopped any nuclear coming into mm. Ireland yeah, yeah. so I think it's something that's naturally quite strong and maybe that's part of the reason why I don't hear much about it they mm. don't want to they don't want um, to hurry too much uh, yeah. emotion around this. Yeah, because yeah. like I mean, there, there was not, there's nothing really been mentioned in this about the media, as far as I can tell. I had to go onto the Oroctus website. You had to go and look and at watch a video yeah. of the actual politicians talking about it in the room. Yeah. To, I mean, I heard about this because I got a, an email about it from because I'm signed up to a newsletter that's specifically about fracking. But unless you go onto this obscure website and sign up for this newsletter, you're not going to no. hear about these things. Um, but in any case the bill has passed through the Oireachtas Joint Committee a number of amendments were made including to include the words hydraulic fracturing which are actually missing from the original draft like I said the, the debate's quite hard to follow but it's interesting to watch I mean they spent a lot of time congratulating each other and commending the speed of the the bill being passed through and the fact that it's passing through at all because it's a private member's bill which means it's not brought by a member of government but a backbencher and apparently they, this is the first time this has been brought this far before another reason for the lack of attention to it and that's why they're all Pat themselves yeah. in the back in isolation almost. Yeah. Uh, but there has been so now it's true to the doll stage. It's it's past the committee, so it's it's going on to the doll now to be to be discussed further. Uh, Breed Smith uh, was one of the people present. She she stated that she would be tabling amendments at the doll stage to make sure that it includes offshore fracking as well as onshore. Um, That's right. She also asked about CETA, which is a proposed trade agreement with Canada, similar to TTIP, and asked about its allowance for companies based in Canada to interfere with local laws such, such as this one. Now, she was assured by the minister that Ireland was allowed to legislate for this without contravening CETA, but that's something worth exploring more, I think, because I'm not sure how that can be the case. But yeah, like I said, many people, including Friends of the Earth, have expressed a worry that uh, now that it's through to the doll phase, it'll just be added to their pile of things to discuss, and that it'll just be passed on down the road so it, do we, it, there needs to like really be a lot more attention paid to this there needs to be a bit of uh, initiative and a bit of uh, it needs to be political pressure put on basically for it to happen yeah. as is the case with so many things because unless it's coming up in people's news feeds all the time unless people are talking about it unless it's appearing in the newspaper it was first mooted to kind of allay people's fears when there was a little bit of common knowledge and, and, and public kind of um Concern about about fracking in general, and then it was mooted that they were going to prohibit it. But I remember as well at the time there was some concerns of some people I'd been speaking to that you know maybe this is going to be used as it was actually just bringing it in through the back door, and make it sound like mm. kind of the same tactic they tried to do with the water charges issues, kick the can down the road, worry about it later when it's all died down, which didn't work in that case, but it could yet work in this case. So you know it's nothing is it sounds great in terms of the overall point of the legislation, but nothing is nothing is final until it's final. It could all yeah, get yeah. it could all get torpedoed at some stage. Some new government and a government could be new government be formed at any stage mm-hmm. if they decide to pay any attention to this. It could be it could all be reconfigured completely. Yeah. So that's the crack of fracking anyway. Um, so I guess it's focusing our attention even more local now on uh, Dublin. I came across this first in an, an article in the Dublin Enquirer. Um, yeah, it's been put forward that uh, for various reasons um, a, a seagull cull should take place and uh, Councillor Mannix Flynn suggested this at, a, at an environment committee meeting um, and if supported by a number of councillors including Fine Gael councillors uh, one such councillor Norma Salmon suggested a forum to discuss it uh, citing noise pollution pet attacks, fouling and rubbish spread noise pollution yeah, like you were talking there about wanting to reduce cars on the keys. Yeah, that like that will reduce noise pollution. Yeah, absolutely. You know? uh, rubbish spreading. You know, maybe we could have and better where, rubbish management. Maybe we could. Maybe where did that rubbish come from in the first place? We were talking about this recently. Yeah. We talked. You were mentioning the fact that they apparently yeah, there were a lot of seagulls in areas with a lot of rubbish. And didn't we not have many years ago our pri- our um, rubbish collection privatized? And yeah. what happened then in lots of especially poor areas? If people dumping out in the middle of the road because they can't afford to get it picked up, so uh, that's where you start with that, not killing the bloody yeah. seagulls. And will they not only come back and reproduce again mm-hmm. from this? Yeah, maybe you do like to do in many European cities and provide public bins, sealed public bins for people to put the rubbish in, recycling and regular rubbish. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the notion that seagulls and noise pollution, like blaming noise pollution on birds. Yeah. What? Uh, is I just for I, squawking I, like. For, yeah. Uh, I mean pet attacks fair enough there have been cases of pets being attacked in the UK and that's sad when that happens but sometimes animals kill other animals um, that's right but I, I, because of this I looked into it and this isn't the first time that people have gone a bit 
a bit silly over seagulls. It, a similar thing happened in 2015. Fianna Fáil Senator Dennis O'Donovan asked the Senate to consider discuss, to consider discussing the cull. In 2016, Paddy McCartan from Fine Gael suggested a cull because of uh, a drop in water quality in Merrion Strand, as though bird shit as opposed to the fucking us pumping all of our shit into the sea <laughs> is, the, is the cause of this. Um, Humans was, don't pollute. What are you talking about? Yeah, I know. Well, like, in a city, never. Um... And if you actually look at the EPA report about Marion Strand water quality, it stresses that various waste was found on the site, not just the seagull shit. Yeah. That like they do mention seagull shit, but they they like they drew specific attention to the fact that there was lots of other waste there. It really wasn't just the seagull yeah. shit. Um, and again, if all that was rubbish that attracted them in the first place, yeah. causation versus correlation, you have a bit of there, you know. Yeah. And reading just the, I mean, I remember this I, when I heard about this years ago. It seemed like it started as a bit of a joke, like a Waterford Whispers article or something about seagulls attacking people. And there were like real cases of people, someone, like a fo- their phone was stolen or their sandwich was stolen by a seagull. <laughs> I think that's, yeah, I think that's hilarious. <laughs> I really don't think it's a cause for uh, for fear. But like the media, if you look at the language being used in these articles, they refer to them as avian adversaries. N- not ironically, by the way, and the big aggressive animals. Uh... Like seagulls, they're, okay, they're bigger than a some crows maybe but they're not big aggressive animals they just aren't afraid of people I've personally never been assaulted by a seagull I'm going to be honest with you I, I mean I've been stared dead in the face by one but I, I've never been assaulted by one <laughs> um, but I were joking now but the sad thing about this is uh, if you go on like if you actually look into the seagull numbers yeah it's true that there are a greater number of gulls in coastal areas and in cities because there's more people living in cities and That's because right. of all the rubbish we produce and the useless shit and like we that we produce and the, the amount of food waste we have if you want to talk about reducing seagull yeah. numbers let's reduce our food waste That's yeah, we that's need to do that for loads of reasons food production and usage system yeah. that we have like we dispose of some ridiculous percentage of our food like 60% Gosh. of our food gets thrown away Yeah. Um, so let's tackle that the actual problem as opposed to like the root causes yeah, yeah exactly but it's, it's sad really because if you look at the, the actual numbers of gulls not just in the city but nationwide uh Birdwatch Ireland lists many gulls in the Dublin area of varying status in terms of the population. Some are okay, some are in decline. Um, but if you look at their, they have the Birds of Conservation Concern document and they mention the black-headed gull is in the red, the Mediterranean gull, the little gull, the common gull, the lesser black-backed gull and the greater black-backed gull are listed as amber status, which means they're, so if they're in the red, they're in serious danger. Amber status means they're declining in Ireland, but their numbers are doing okay globally. But as well as that, the herring gull their numbers are declining and they're the main they're the, the, the gulls you see you know, yeah, the one you'd be most familiar with they're the ones you see in all the pictures of them looking really evil with their big pointy beak their numbers are declining in Ireland um, so far from being this sudden huge surge of birds they're actually declining um, so the idea that killing them on mass is something that needs to be done and losing perspective that you just see in a very small part of Dublin and you don't see what's actually going on in the overall picture in the rest of the country but something yeah. that happens on hundreds of issues all the time yeah, it's very yeah. typical here unfortunately it's really bad yeah. this, is, this is a prime example of what's known as a moral panic which oh, yeah. is uh, an issue being whipped up out of nowhere yeah. there isn't really a problem and it's a distraction tactic you could say if you were cynically minded which I oh, definitely yeah. am um, when you have when you have Fine Gael people bringing it up and making a big deal about it you know, yeah. t- you know take it with a pinch of salt it just like you know the welfare fraud thing you know what I mean drawing oh, yeah. attention to oh, this oh god yeah when it's it's really not even in the overall picture it's an absolute pittance yeah compared to the amount of money that was lost to Anglo-Irish and the bailouts mm. and how much money was lost how much damage was done to the economy through that and as I mentioned earlier with Shell and that mm. you know when you actually compare these things it's, it's a few million it's a pittance in the overall exchequer mm. it's nothing it's not significant yeah it's just it's nice for them because they're the rich boys Fine Gael. Yeah. So it suits them. Whereas you know any of the any of the dodgy overall practice, any of the corporation tax rate. Talking about the corporation tax rate, how many businesses are in Ireland that make an absolute killing to barely or paying basically no corporation tax or an extremely low corporate tax rate, and how much money we make from that versus mm. the pittance we would get back from reclaiming some small numbers of welfare funds. Yeah. So we'll go after the people who have the absolute nerve to try and get a bit of money from the state because they're unemployed because of the sorry state the country is in also due to the state's decisions uh, instead of going after after the people who gambled away the money in the first place financially destroyed this country and we'll kill a load of seagulls instead of reducing our food waste and getting better bins 
and so dealing with a symptom oh. of a potentially of an issue rather than dealing with the actual issue so yeah. and um, the latest I heard on that is that Fingal County Council on May 1st were due to start removing nests in the Balbriggan area I don't know how the idea has progressed in Dublin City I, I don't think anything started I don't think I, I guess discussions are ongoing but that's something else we look into in the future um, most likely it'll die down again and then people will start panicking about it again next summer we'll see I'd just like to mention just very very briefly the last, it's been a few weeks now since this came out but the latest state of play with the water charges of course is that more or less for all intents and purposes it's been defeated it's been reported by the Irish Times as something like 90 something percent of people won't pay Fine Gael took a long time to cave in but you know Fianna Fáil kind of pushed him a bit on it that was kind of thrown into this deal between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael to keep Fine Gael happy because mm. they were so stubborn on it for so long yeah. but um, it doesn't seem workable to me especially yeah. when you have uh, the the female water warriors going around in cer- certain parts of uh, the country and in Dublin uh, taking out water meters where they already do exist so I think there's there's always going to be strong potential for strong grassroots resistance going on, anything like that in the long run. But um, so it's. But anyway, the, the, I I just wanted to mention it briefly because it was a campaign that was very very strong, and unlike the bin charges campaigns, you know the people, the side of the people actually won out big time on this one. And I'd also like to take the opportunity to get some serious criticism of the Green Party because they were basically in favour of water charges. But uh, the, all the talk about this issue being around water conservation was obviously nonsense. I think That's every bullshit. Yeah, yeah. yeah every, like when it was introduced and mooted. Well, not necessarily it was introduced and mooted, but when it was starting to be brought through more forcefully and really brought to the mm. fore was in the wake of the economy having been destroyed and people were quite aware. People were already squeezed to bits. So many jobs have been lost, welfare money lost. That the water charges and the fact they were applied as a flat tax rate, is a flat rate. In other words, the people who are the poorest in society pay the greatest proportion of their wages of that or their income on that. So it was highly unjust. It was very much a class issue, and that's the reason why it's one of the reasons why it won. But you know, the Green, but Eamon Ryan once said that they, Fianna Fáil and the Green Party, when they were you know in government before they uh, eventually were taken out in what was it, 2011. They basically started to legislate and introduce for water charges. And Eamon Ryan actually said after he was um, no longer uh, in government, uh, um, he believed that Labour were going. That he thought Labour were going to be in government next, which they were, but that he believed that they would never allow it to go through. So he's claiming that he basically set paved the way for water charges because he thought that another party was going to be in government after him that was going to block it. I mean, either being a a liar and a coward of the highest order. But uh, on top of that, they were always in support of water charges because at the end of the day, you know, a part of the reason why we're even doing this podcast is that there are other forms of environmentalism that don't have, that are not for the upper classes and that are, do recognise, um, uh, come from a sort of a a working class uh, perspective, if you like, or just... You know, or just a class for the common, perspective. Like, absolutely, yeah. and it's for the co- for the common people. And of course, you can be an environmentalist and not get duped by this absolute lie that it was all about conservation. Because you know, you can have a you can have a publicly funded um, water infrastructure and still go and have your utility. If it's going to be Irish Water, if it's going to be the councils or whatever, go and fixing all the leaks that happen. There's there's a huge amount of lo- water loss to leaks. You don't need to charge people uh, privately to be able to fix that. So it's it's been shown like when they brought introduced um, residential water charges in the UK, it reduced overall water consumption by less than two percent. Exactly. Less, yeah. or like less than percent even. Yeah. Like not a significant amount at all. No. Uh, domestic consumption in general, be it of water or of petroleum products, pales in insignificance compared to industrial consumption anyway. Exactly. So it's the it's the wrong area to be targeting. Absolutely, Much like goals, absolutely. the so-called welfare, people on welfare, it's like... The divide and conquer technique yeah. as well, because it's easy to go after individuals, whereas going after entire industries, uh, there's too much, you know, inter- there's too much uh, ca- interest of capital, private capital there to be challenged. There's, yeah, there's too much power there, as we're seeing with the, the struggle against Shell globally. Absolutely. Um, but it was a good news overall, I just wanted to mention that briefly about water charges, and just get my dig in there, Eamon Ryan and the Green Party, for their bad environmentalism. So what we're talking about here is like we're not just idly whinging about the Green Party because we voted for them and then felt sad about it because they didn't do any of the things they said they would. Um, there's, a, there's a reason why we've brought that up amongst all the other campaigns that we've brought up, you know. Um, for one, you know, it's very important to point out that the likes of the Green Party, 
you know, the, the major, major problem with the Green Party overall is that most people would look at them and they would say correctly that it's not for them because they ultimately are, it's, it's, they may well be environmentalists, but they are, it's an elite form of environmentalism. It doesn't take into account any sort of solid class politics whatsoever, which if environmentalism is, environmentalism is going to do, and if we're going to really address climate change on a systemic level, that needs to happen. We need to, there yeah. needs to be an over, an over section between an, an overlap where we take care of things like people's economic needs at the same time. So their form of environmentalism is not for the mass, you know. It's not for the vast, vast majority of people. Exactly, exactly. It doesn't have the, the interests of the vast majority of people at heart. No. Um, uh, it's like Naomi Klein pointed out in her most recent, I think it's her most recent book, This Changes Everything. Like if you're, if you're part of any struggle, if you're fighting privatisation, if you're fighting water privatisation, if you're fighting for housing, they're all struggles against climate change because you can't fight, you can't resist climate change or environmental destruction without resisting privatisation. It doesn't Absolutely. make sense. It's not possible. Exactly, because you need to act in the common interest. You can't you can't overcome this colossal problem without acting in the common interest rather than a private mm. elite type of interest. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, and also, just more generally, we wanted to have this podcast as well so we could have sort of like, not quite news, more analysis than news, but... Also have it to be, you know, an overlap between environmentalism and class politics and politics in general because all these things are interrelated. You can't take something and um, and maybe that's been one problem with environmentalism in general, I might say, is that it's maybe Very quite isolated. often taken in, in isolation. But yeah. in reality, you know, you can't, again, you can't, like we just had this talk about Shell, we couldn't help but talk about the economics of the situation. We couldn't talk, and, uh, and, and, you know, even things like, say, for example, climate justice, you know, in, in with something we'll touch on another time, I'm sure, we touched on in the previous episode about the need for, as the climate gets worse and there's more disasters like they're having in Colombia and Peru, there's going to be a, a greater need as time goes on for people to be able to be climate refugees, basically, to move from one country to another. So that absolutely then touches on all of the politics that's associated with Brexit and increasing racism and the far right and all that. So all of these issues necessarily in the real world overlap and intersect and we need to be able to not be limited in how we talk about that. And that's one of the main aims of this podcast is to is to not be isolate, isolated in our way of thinking. Just that environmentalism is something all and off by itself. It's not. Yeah. I saw an excellent uh, slogan on a banner years ago. It said, uh, we're not fighting for nature. We are nature fighting back. Yeah, exactly. and I think that's the way it has to be done. Like environmentalism is self-defense. It's basically what it is. It's Absolutely. people looking after the place that they live. Absolutely, because we're talking about our own survival, and but that's what we're talking about. That's survival, it, yeah, yeah. basically. So that's, I guess, that's probably it for this time. Um, we'll be back at some point in the not too distant future. We haven't really sussed that out yet. We'll have um, some juicy bits for you. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up, then, will you? Um, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll probably have another one out over the summer. Um, but we're just going to leave you with a song now, actually, because. Um, I thought of this earlier on when we were talking about um, Leo Varadkar's uh, campaign against uh, the poor, the poor basically um, against the so-called welfare frauds campaign um, for Taoiseach. I'm sure we'll know by the next episode if he's Taoiseach or not. Or there's yeah, been yeah. another general election by then. Um, so I was thinking about this song by Crass. Uh, do they also live in? Of course they fucking do. And uh, it's a nice one for you to hum when you're on your way down to sign on next time. Good luck to you. Good luck. Cause I fucking know Don't take any 